Well, friends, it is the Gospel of Mark that we're turning our attention to again this morning, and it is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. If you have a, a copy of the Scriptures there, or use one of the Pew Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2, and we are going to stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read it aloud, and when I've read it, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll say thanks be to God. So let's, let's stand together now. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. <clears throat> he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our Lord Jesus willingly associated himself with sinners for the good of their souls. And as his people, so should we. We pick up the text in Mark here in the middle of a series of conflicts. We've been introduced to the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 1, and now in Mark chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, there are a, a series of controversies that take place. And the, the pattern in most of these controversies is the same. Jesus does something unexpected and revolutionary. He is criticized for it, and then he responds in a way that silences his critics, and the narrative moves on. A few weeks ago, we considered the beginning of chapter 2 and this passage that was about forgiveness involving the paralytic who was let down through the ceiling of the, the room where the Lord Jesus was teaching. Today, the theme of the text really is sinners. Uh, it is that word that is repeated again and again in this short passage. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners, the ungodly, the unrighteous, the undesirable, the unworthy. In this passage, our Lord deals with sinners in an unexpected way, in really a revolutionary kind of way. He is criticized for it by the scribes and Pharisees, by the religious authorities of the day. And then he responds to that criticism in a way that silences his opponents. Now, the text is more complicated than it lets on at first reading, so we're going to keep the outline very simple today. We're going to spend a few minutes considering the text itself, what's happening and, and why. 
And then I have just one point of application to make about it, what this means for us as a church. So first, let's, let's take a few minutes and let's consider what exactly is going on here. As I said, Jesus begins by doing something controversial. And that controversial thing really begins with his calling Levi to be his disciple. Verse 13 says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowds were coming to him and he was teaching them. Now, this is Christ's pattern at this point in his ministry. He is traveling around the region. He is teaching people. He is proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith. And verse 14 says, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. At some point in his traveling, he sees this man, Levi, and Mark identifies him for us as a tax collector. He tells us who he is, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And the only other detail he gives us is that he was sitting at a tax booth. Is a tax collector. And we do need to have some understanding of what it meant for this man to be a tax collector at this period in ancient Near Eastern history. It was not like being an IRS agent today. Uh, if you remember, Judah at this time is occupied territory. The, the Romans are in authority over Judah, and it is, it is in some ways... Uh, um, held by them under, very much so, held by them under their sway. And they are extracting taxes from the Jews that are living in this part of the world. Now, the extraction of those taxes was not done exclusively by Roman citizens or Roman soldiers. A lot of the work of collecting taxes was contracted out to locals, to Jews that were living, especially up in this region of Galilee, uh, farther away from the major city, Jerusalem. And those people who were contracted as tax collectors working for the Romans, they were not paid directly by the Romans for their work. They rather paid themselves by padding the taxes they collected and pocketing the extra. They inflated the amount of taxes that they were to collect so that they could extort from people uh, their own living, and it wasn't a meager living. By and large, tax collectors were very wealthy. They were making profits uh, substantially. Tax collecting was a pretty shady business at this time in this part of the world. And you've got to think, what kind of person would do this? What kind of person would be willing to work for that occupying force in order to take advantage of their own countrymen for personal gain. Well, we know for sure that this was the kind of person that would do this would, be, would have to be a Jew with little or no regard for the Mosaic law because the interaction that they would have with Gentiles would make them unclean according to the law. So they couldn't be a religiously observant individual. But they also had to be somebody that was willing to be abusive of their power and be deceptive and to be greedy. This had to be a person that was, that was willing uh, to engage in quite a bit of immoral behavior for their own advantage. As you can imagine, and I'm sure as many of you all have heard before, 
tax collectors were not well beloved by their countrymen. Uh, the people in the community uh, hated tax collectors, and understandably so. In addition to, to all the things I've just described, I mean, they were traitors, ultimately. They were collaborators with the Romans that were occupying that region, and they were getting rich in the process of it. I've been racking my brain the last few weeks trying to think of a modern equivalent of this position of tax collector, something in our society that equates, and there isn't really anything that equates perfectly. It is hard to imagine somebody in this position. I mean, they have all of the, the ambition and the greed of somebody who's like dealing drugs on the street. They have all the, the moral uncleanness of a, of a prostitute. And yet they have the sort of frightening connected power of somebody who's maybe a gang member. They were despised in their society. Jews in this position were disqualified from being witnesses in court, from serving as a judge. They were oftentimes expelled from the synagogue. They were shunned by their families. And in fact, uh, according to some rabbis, it was legal and permissible to lie to a tax collector. That was how low the, the, the popular opinion of them was. Even though the ninth commandment says you're not to bear false witness, those guys you can lie to. It's possible that this tax collector, Levi, was even more unclean than the leper that we read about Christ's interaction with in a previous passage. In part because he was in this position by choice. He had decided to be in that position. In fact, he may have bribed some Roman officials to get into that position. There was competition for it. I say all this because we need to consider what sort of a man Levi was. What sort of man he had chosen to be. And at this point in the gospel narrative, not the kind of man he was formerly, but the kind of man he was currently. When the Lord Jesus comes upon him here, he is sitting at the tax booth engaged in this work. And our Lord Jesus sees him and calls him. He just says, follow me. There's no more of the conversation recorded by Mark. The important thing is that Jesus says to him, follow me. The call to discipleship is issued. The call behind, the, to leave behind that life and all of his investment there and to become a student, to become a follower, to become an apprentice of the Lord Jesus. And as we know, this man, Levi, it wasn't just any disciple that he was going to be. The Lord Jesus was not just calling him to be part of the mass that was following him. He was going to be one of the twelve. He was going to be one of the apostles. And in fact, this Levi who we understand from the other Gospels, is also referred to as Matthew, was actually going to be the instrument that the Holy Spirit was going to use to pen the Gospel of Matthew, this tax collector. He was going to be a, an author of Holy Scripture. He was going to be a pillar in the early church. He was going to be an evangelist. And eventually, he was going to be a martyr for the name of the Lord Jesus, this man that he finds sitting at his tax booth. 
Jesus calls him, he says, follow me. And astonishingly, he does. He leaves it all for Christ. He gets up and goes after him. Now, it's entirely possible this was not their first encounter. Jesus has been in the region preaching and teaching. It's entirely possible that Levi had been listening to him. Levi knew what the Lord Jesus was teaching. And this call and his response is something of a culmination rather than a beginning. But still, it is astounding. The Lord Jesus says, follow me. And he does. And what Christ is going to do with him is amazing. Let me just make a note here in passing before we get on to the rest of the text. It is very much like our Lord to use unlikely instruments to carry out his work. I think that's important for us to remember and acknowledge. To use unlikely characters, improbable individuals, to do the kind of work that he wants to do in the world. To use Jacob's and Samson's. To use Levi's and Saul's. In that way, he demonstrates his mercy. He also demonstrates his power. And he does display his glory in a unique way. Because he is the one who does the work through crooked instruments. I do think that we need to remember that. It's very easy for us, friends, to start to walk by sight in this area and, and begin to think in merely human terms as if God would select His choice servants according to human potential as the world does, giving preference to those who are the best and the brightest. Now, He does that sometimes. There's no arguing that the Apostle Paul was, a, was an unusual mind. There's no argument that, that men in church history like, like Jonathan Edwards were especially gifted, like Martin Luther, were especially gifted in human terms, and the Lord used them mightily. But oftentimes, He doesn't use servants like that. He uses other people. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul is addressing the church there, he says this, he's reminding the Corinthians of who they are. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Even in Paul's day, the church was full of unlikely instruments, unlikely converts that the Lord glorified His name through, when in human terms they did not seem like the best choice. Church history is full of it, full of men like John Newton, and even today, Many of you all are familiar with, in fact, we talked about it during Sunday school this morning, this woman, Rosaria Butterfield, whom the Lord has converted in His mercy in recent years, a very unlikely convert, but a sharp instrument in the hand of our God. It's important for us to remember that as a church. Now, some of us may fit the bill in human terms for Christian service, 
according to our natural gifts and abilities, but others of us don't. And you take, you take me out of the coat and, coat and tie, and maybe I don't fit the bill very well. And yet, the Lord has called us and given us this work to do. And he draws straight lines with crooked sticks and he glorifies himself in a special way. And there is no one here today that God can't make use of in the most dramatic and effective ways if he chooses to. There's nobody in the city of Roanoke that God can't redeem, no matter how low they are, and turn them into someone effective for his name. I mean, friends, the next sinner who walks through the doors of Grace Church might be the next elder or the next pastor here. Even if that person is a drunk or an adulterer or a racist who comes in, they could become a pillar in this church if the Lord Jesus Christ does a work in their hearts. There might be somebody sitting in the pews right now whose life is swamped with sin who might this very day respond to the call of the gospel and end up being the most useful instrument this church has ever known. We've got to remember that. And in remembering that, share the gospel boldly and freely and judge with right judgment, not according to human capability, but according to the power and the mercy of God. There will be more Levi's before the Lord Jesus comes again in power more unlikely converts that he calls. But even as unlikely as this situation is in his calling of Levi and what he's going to do with him, that is not really the source of the controversy in this text. The controversy is over what happens next. Look back at, uh, at Mark chapter 2, in verses 15 and 16. And as he reclined at table in his house, that is Levi's house, the Lord Jesus is at Levi's house, for a meal. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's where the controversy really, really comes into play. Levi has a dinner at his house, having been called by the Lord Jesus. The, the parallel Accounts in Luke and Matthew indicate maybe even this is a celebration that Levi is having. And he invites to this dinner his friends, his, his associates. And they are, the text tells us, sinners like him. Sinners here, it's not just a technical term for people who break the biblical law. It really is a whole category for people whose lives were lived largely outside of the law, with no concern for it. From those who were deliberately opposed to the law, like thieves, drunks, thugs, prostitutes, tax collectors like Levi, all the way to those who were simply too busy, too poor, too ignorant to conform to the complicated lives prescribed by the Pharisees. Those who were common people, laborers, shepherds, people with disabilities, etc., they were all lumped together uh, in the society under this category of sinners, according to the Pharisees and, scribe, and scribes. Now, it seems odd for us to lump you know, day laborers in with thieves, but it wasn't to them, because these were all folks who had no regard for the law of God, for whatever reason. And these are the sort of guests that were at Levi's house. 
Many of them, evidently. The text says many followed him. And Jesus enjoys their company over a meal at Levi's. He is welcomed by them and he welcomes them. He partakes of the meal with them. And there is no separation between he and them as they eat. Now, the scribes and Pharisees who are following Jesus and watching, they observe this, and of course, they object. For one, the dietary law that they were, they were under would forbid it. Jesus was making himself unclean by sharing a meal with surely Gentiles present there and people who were ritually unclean. But also, to have a meal around a table in this society, in this time in human history, was a much bigger deal than it is for us. It is a sort of social event that communicates some, some level of connection. It's people behaving as peers, acting like friends together. And it's understandable that seeing this would set the Pharisees and the scribes off. I mean, it's one thing to interact with a sinner when you are calling that person to repent and follow you the way he did with Levi. It's something entirely different to sit down for a meal together with them. I mean, it would be different for you to see me in my neighborhood maybe you know, interacting with some of the more unsavory characters uh, that live around my house if, if you saw me on the street corner evangelizing them. Repent, brother. It would be totally different if you saw me walking into a movie theater with them because we were going to enjoy a film together. Right? You might think, huh, what's he doing over there? That's sort of the dynamic here. Jesus calls Levi from the tax booth, follow me. And the Pharisees don't object, but then he goes to Levi's house and has dinner. And there are all these individuals there. And there is no indication that they were all leaving behind their sin to follow him. And yet, there he is, treating them like they're his associates, like they're his friends. Now, some folks imagine Jesus engaged in rough behavior at this point. They imagine Jesus drinking to excess and engaged in coarse joking, that sort of thing, because of the company that he was keeping. I think that there's no indication of that in the text. And in fact, that would be impossible given that the Scriptures are clear that our Savior is sinless. But it's also clear that He was not holding His nose up at them. But He was treating them as friends. He was welcoming them into His fellowship and embracing them willingly and without distinction here. You've got to imagine the Lord Jesus reclined at table with these folks passing bread back and forth, passing a cup back and forth. I mean, the juxtaposition between the sinless Son of God and these rough individuals, I mean, it would have been stark. You see why the Pharisees were offended. But I remind you again, they, don't, they didn't even know the half of what was going on. This was not just a sinless man sitting there at the table. And this really is God Himself who has come to have a meal with his people, who's, who's passing plates back and forth and engaged in conversation. I mean, the 
God of the universe who set the stars in their places. Here he is sitting across the table from somebody and talking with him. Somebody who has, in terms of righteousness, absolutely no business being in his presence at all. And yet there he is. Not even knowing this much, the Pharisees see this and they ask of his disciples, why is he doing this? Why is he eating with them? No, there's implied criticism there. He should not be eating with them. We would not do that. Why is he doing that? They don't give the criticism directly. They give it through a third party. But it gets around to Jesus, and Jesus explains to them why. He answers their question. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus hears their criticism. He responds to them directly. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, notice first what he does not say. When they say, why are you eating with them? Why are you having fellowship with them? Jesus does not say, because they are image bearers made in the image of God, and therefore they deserve dignity. That's true. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, well, you're sinners too, and they deserve my attention as much as anyone, so how dare you look down your nose at them? He does not say that. That's true. Those are the kind of things that we would say. Jesus says, these people are sick, and I'm a doctor. Isn't that interesting? That that's the reason that he gives for why. That that's his explanation. It's a proverbial saying. It's not unique to the Scriptures to say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And the principle is obvious. Where do doctors belong? They belong with people that are sick. They don't belong just with other doctors. Right? They should be in the middle of it. Now, Jesus is clearly not speaking literally about people who are physically sick. He's calling these people sinners. Well and sick corresponds to righteous and sinful here. He calls them sinners. Now, notice, rather than reject this judgmental category that the Pharisees and scribes are using, sinners, Jesus actually uses it himself, but explains that is the very reason why he's there, because these people are sinners. They're sick with sin. And he's the doctor who's come with the cure. He likens sinners unto people who are sick, and they are, in a spiritual sense, they are very much infected with the disease of rebellion against God, disregard for the law of God. They're cursed with the condemnation that comes from that disease. They're, they're separated from God and from His mercy. And judgment and hell are the right consequence of that sickness of the soul. There's a sickness of the soul that's afflicting them, and Jesus is the doctor. He is the one with the cure. In fact, He is the cure, and that's why He'd come, to heal them, to cure them, to make them whole again. That's what the cross is all about. That the Lord Jesus would come and would take the punishment that they deserve for their sins on Himself, that they might be forgiven, and that, that He might live this righteous life that they might have it in His place, that that He might take their place in condemnation so that they might take His place of favor with God. That's what He'd come to do. He'd come to save sinners. And so, as a doctor belongs with the sick, so the Savior belongs with the sinners. Now, 
I'll note here just in passing, the Pharisees were sick with sin as well, of course. They were also unrighteous and under condemnation. Jesus isn't saying otherwise. He's just explaining why he's eating with these people who are overtly ungodly. He's defending the company he's keeping here. He's not implying that some are exempt from his call. There's nobody exempt from his call. There's nobody that doesn't need the doctor's care. That's not what he's saying. There's nobody here that doesn't need it. And friends, are you a sinner? Have you recognized that yet? That you've fallen short of the glory of God? The good news is if you're a sinner, He will have you. In fact, that is His business, that is His office. Treating His disease, doing the necessary work to cure your soul, saving you. That's not some unpleasant chore He does while He holds His nose. It is the very reason why He came and He paid a great price to come and do it. Now, with that being said, what, what does that mean for us as a church? How does this apply to us? I mean, we are His disciples, aren't we? We are His students. We are His followers, His servants. Well, a number of applications could be made here, I think. Personal, spiritual. But, but I want to I note only one application to you all today with the, next, with the last couple minutes that I have here. And that is this, from this passage, we learn an important lesson about how we, as Christ's people, as His servants, are to conduct ourselves as we carry out His work in the world. We are to willingly associate ourselves with sinners in His name for their good. We, His church, we, we must be a sort of hospital for all those who are sick with sin. If we're to do the work that He was doing and do it in the way that He is doing it, if we're to carry on His work in the way He's given us to do it, we must think of the church as a sort of hospital for those who are sick with sin. Now, the church in our time, in the world, and, and for much of history, there is this hard path to walk. I mean, we are to be in the world and not of it, right? We are to be loving the world but not stained by it. That is a hard tension to hold. And it's common for churches to, to go to one extreme or the other, to either shun people who are sinners as if we ourselves were sinless and might contract sin like an infectious disease from them, and isolate ourselves and keep everybody at arm's length who doesn't walk just like we walk, or to go to the other extreme and embrace the world in such a way that affirms and even adopts sinful behavior and way of thinking and acting as if sin were no big deal and as if the gospel were unnecessary and there were no such thing as the new birth. You see those extremes all over the place. Jesus is doing neither of those things. Jesus is welcoming sinners with open arms because they are dying in their sin and need a cure. They need a Redeemer. And He is the only Redeemer. What I'm saying is we as a church, we as Grace Church, need to be careful to follow His example and be sure that Grace Church is a place where sin is called sin and sinners are welcomed. Does that make sense? 
We don't compromise one way or the other, but walk in the path He laid out for us here. Now, now practically, what does that mean? I think in the very beginning, friends, and in the most practical terms, that means greet people that come here. Welcome people that come to this church warmly and treat them like they belong here. Don't ignore anybody who comes to this church, no matter how ill-fitting they may appear to be here at Grace Church on a Sunday morning. If their clothing is out of place, if their language is out of place, if their appearance or their behavior is odd or offensive to you in some way, don't let any of that be a hindrance to you embracing them, either literally or figuratively. And I'm not just saying don't judge a book by its cover. What I'm saying is regardless of the book, regardless of the cover, people should be welcome here if this is the church of Jesus Christ. Even if it's not just the cover, but it is the book itself that's pretty bad. Someone who is openly sexually immoral. Someone who is overtly racist. Someone who is greedy or hateful or perverse. I mean, somebody who considers themselves to be transgender or is openly living a homosexual lifestyle. Somebody who advocates for abortion or who just got out of prison. Somebody who's living here and working illegally, whatever it is. Those people belong here. This is the right place for them. That's not because we endorse their lifestyle or approve of their choices or because they're actually really wonderful people who are just misunderstood. It's because they're sick and this is a hospital. You see the difference? We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that the church is a spiritual hospital and sinners of every kind are welcome here. Friends, if you've got neighbors, coworkers, family members who are sinners, and I mean the kind of, the kind of people that joke about the church burning down as soon as they cross the threshold, don't be afraid to invite them here. In fact, be bold and tell them that the church is not like they think it is. Tell them it's actually full of people who have no business being there, but are, by the grace of God, there. That if churches burst into flames when real sinners entered the doors, our church would have burned down a long time ago. It would be burning right now. I mean, remember that. Bring people here, friends, and introduce them to some of the other sinners. Introduce them to some of the other patients here in the hospital. Somebody who's drinking heavily and struggling with alcohol. We've got some patients here with that condition. People that are struggling with drug abuse. People that are, are sexually immoral. People that are violent. We've got it all. Some of you were some of them. And God has been working in your heart. And friends, to the rest of us, when one of us is bold enough to bring an unchurched acquaintance here, let's not let them down. Don't turn up a judgmental nose and ignore that person or make them feel unwelcome because they've got the look of the world about them or the sound in their words. Don't forget what this place is and don't forget who we are. We were all sick with sin. We all needed to be treated by the doctor, saved by the Savior. I was. I mean, I work here now. 
But I wasn't born like this. I was born in sin. When I first came to the church, I was rotten with it. I mean, I was convinced of all kinds of unbiblical ideas, and I was actively, willingly engaged in all kinds of ungodly behavior. I was an obnoxious, arrogant, self-seeking young man, and I was in that way dangerous. But when I showed up at the church, a man embraced me. He was a Sunday school teacher. His name was also Charlie. I'm not going to forget it. I clearly did not belong there in human terms, but he did not treat me like I did not belong there. He treated me like I had finally come home. And that was exactly where I belonged. And he started to talk to me. He found out my name. He found out about the life that I was leading. He found out I knew knew zip about the Bible, so he gave me one. He told me to read it. He asked later if I was reading it, and he began to talk with me about what the Bible says to me in my life. And friends, that was a catalyst, a primary catalyst for my salvation. I showed up at the church as somebody who had no business being there in human terms, but people treated me like I was exactly where I was, where I should have been. And they were right. That is where I belonged. That's what I'm asking you to do. Embrace people. Speak to people. If it's at all possible, invite them over to your home and find out about them and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and His Gospel and His call. Treat them like they belong here, like they've come to the right place when they come to church because they have come to the right place. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that we're not to be prudent. That doesn't mean we're not to be cautious. And we have a a new child care policy and we have this training on November the 10th that is very significant. It does mean that we are not to hold our noses up to anyone. We're not to turn up our nose to any kind of sinner or treat people as if they are unwelcome or unwanted here because to do so is in a real way to deny the very gospel that we're preaching. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But friends, we do believe that gospel. That gospel is the truth. We do believe that we are saved by grace and that anyone, no matter how sinful, can likewise be saved as well if they will but come to the Lord Jesus. This is a, this is a simple message, and it may be that my message to you this morning is redundant, and for that reason I am about to end it. But we have got to be a church who remembers who we are, remembers what we are. We are not a religious fashion show who come together to parade around in our self-righteousness. We're a hospital And many of us came in here, I mean, bleeding out spiritually. We barely made it through triage. The the church needs to stay aware that that's who we are. We need to stay aware of who our Lord is. And remember that He is the one who sat down at Levi's house and ate with sinners. And He was criticized for it. But He did so very willingly. He did so deliberately. So Grace Church, let us be a church that welcomes sinners and offers them the cure that we ourselves have found. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus willingly associated Himself with sinners 
for the good of their souls. And as His people, we should do likewise. Now let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for humbling Yourself to come. You did a lot more than just share a meal with sinners. You Yourself were counted among sinners. You were counted among criminals. You Yourself went to the cross in our place. Thank You for that. We pray that You would transform our hearts. Oh Lord, that we would have faith, that we would believe that this, this gospel is true. We would trust in You. Oh, but also that we would be like You. Please transform our hearts. Please forgive, at times, our judgmentalism, our self-righteousness. And oh God, make Grace Church a place that is welcoming to sinners because You are our Lord. Thank You for this good news. We pray this Christ in Your name. Amen. Amen.